and then we'll spend, uh, spend some time in the Word. Dear Gracious Father, we are so very thankful for your Son, Jesus. We're so very thankful for the Word uh, that you've given this book to us, this divine library, and as your Spirit moves, uh, we can understand you, we can understand your will, and you apply these things to our lives so that we may lead a life that brings you honor and glory and looks like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, that as we look into your word, that we would see these as not just being, uh, these words on the page are just being a product of humans, but realize that this is your word, and these are the things that you want us to know, and that these things are far more important than any other books or any other words that are written in books. Uh, We ask, Father, that you would be moving in our hearts, causing us to see our hidden sins, that we may repent of them. We ask that you would encourage our hearts to continue to live for you, and that our focus would be honoring and glorifying your Son, Jesus Christ. We're so very thankful for everything you've given us in your Son's name. Amen. So I don't know... uh, what you watch on YouTube or not. I just know that you probably wasted all of yesterday watching YouTube. I'm joking. I I don't know about you, but once you start a YouTube video, that's the day, right? Because then it goes the next one and the next one. Anyways, one of the things that shows up on on YouTube for me is uh, there's these experts that watch movie clips and then they talk about their expertise and how the movies either get it right or wrong. So, like, for example, I saw one of a professional archer critiquing all of these movies where there's people shooting bows, right? And they go, this one has good technique, and this one has bad technique. I watched one this past week of uh, uh, ancient war expert and he was an expert on ancient battles and strategies. Um, that's probably a hard one to sell the mom and dad. Hey, mom, I'm going to school. What are you studying? I'm studying how to keep the Spartans out of Persia. Um, that's probably not the most, uh, most beneficial degree. But anyways, he was looking at some of these films where there were these battles, and he pointed out, numerous times where Hollywood will depict these battles where you have an army who very clearly is in a position of of advantage, and then they'll do things to willfully put themselves at a disadvantage, right? For the sake of the drama of the scene, it's great for the scene, but if that actually happened in real battle, it would be devastating to the army that did it. And so here you have these armies in, in the name of strategy giving up an advantage, and, and it's not very smart. And as I was thinking about that and thinking about this text this morning, I realized that there's a lot of similarities between those Hollywood films, how they depict battles of people that are standing in a position of advantage on, on the good ground will leave that ground, will leave that position, and go to a place where they can get hurt. They can be killed. They leave, a, they leave a good defensive position to go to a poor position. A lot of Christians, we do that. A lot of times we do that. In fact, every time we sin, in a sense, that's what it's like. We're in a position of strength. We're in a position of victory. Christ has already won the victory for us. 
sin is no longer our master, and don't we just go, you know what, I don't need a shield sword, I don't need my helmet, but I'm running down to that uh, giant mud pit at the bottom of the hill, I'm going to just go wrestle it out, right? Put ourselves in a very dangerous position, a position of disadvantage. This morning, we're going to look at this. We're going to look, and, and the point of this text, and, and the point uh, that, that I want to draw out is, God's wisdom is the best position for you. It's the best position for you for submitting to God's word. That's the best, right? When we act foolishly and leave God's wisdom and cease to submit, we open ourselves up to danger foolishly. I don't want us to do that. That's not good. That's not good for us. That's not good for our souls. That's not good for our brothers and sisters who are sitting here. That's not good for our families or our communities. The best position for you as a believer is to be submitting to God's word, submitting to God's wisdom, to his principles. Don't leave that. Don't leave that ground. So, this morning, what we're going to talk about is the advantages of God's wisdom. So, we're going to be in Proverbs 21. Notice uh, verse 22. We're going to, by God's grace, go to all the way to verse 26. I want to point out three things from this text. In the first two verses, in verses 22 to 23, we're going to look at the security advantage of wisdom. There's a security advantage. There's safety in God's wisdom. There's safety for our souls. There's safety for our life. And so there's this security advantage. You leave this advantage, it's dangerous. Okay. Then in verses 24 to the first part of verse 26, we're going to see the serious disadvantage of folly. Right? So the first is the secure advantage of wisdom. The second one is going to be this serious disadvantage of folly, of rebellion of, uh, of an unteachable heart, of an arrogant person, right? That, that's dangerous. It's always dangerous. Then what we're going to see in the last part of verse 26 is the social advantage to wisdom. We're going to see how God's wisdom not only just affects the way that we view God's wisdom, not only does it just beneficial for us, but it also is beneficial to those around us as well, and we're going to see this. This, this is what God does when he transforms us from the inside out. There, there's going to be that evidence of, uh, of that outward uh, faith. Uh, we, we could say that we're saved by faith alone, but that faith that's saved is definitely not alone. It also has works accompanied with it. So let's just notice in verse 22, and let's look at this security advantage that we have with God's wisdom Notice, Solomon says, a wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. So first, notice this wise man in this particular proverb. Notice that he scales the city wall. Notice that this just isn't any city, right? This isn't like my kids when they make a Lego city and then I can scale those walls There's no great thing for me to scale something that doesn't come all the way up to my ankles. We're talking about a city that's built to be impenetrable, right? It's it's a city wall that's meant 
No one that we don't know is allowed to come in. And notice that a wise man is able to scale this. This doesn't mean, by the way, that if you read a verse a day, you turn into Superman, and you're able just to, nothing hurts you, there's this physical barrier, watch me jump this. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you learn parkour by memorizing God's word. This is very clearly a principle, and the principle is very obvious, isn't it? That a wise man, not that he scales a wall physically, but that there is victory with God's wisdom, right? That God's wisdom is far superior to any defense that man may, may have. And a man who listens to God, which is the wisest thing, is able to do incredible feats because God is with him. The, the, the idea is, is that there's victory, there's this place of security in following God's word. This is very military, by the way, and there, there are numerous times that we can look through God's word and we can see military victories of people doing things just by listening to God and defeating some great defenses. I mean, think of Joshua. What was Joshua's great strategy to bring down Jericho? He walked around the city. That doesn't, that's not a military tactic that you teach to generals Oh, what are we going to do? Let's just walk around him seven times and the the defenses are going to fall. Clearly, that was something that the Lord did supernaturally. But the wisdom part was that Joshua followed what God said. So therefore, wisdom is better than a defense. It's better than a wall in the real world. But think about this. Even spiritually, isn't isn't any type of defense that a a foolish or a sinful person puts up to protect themselves and their position or their temptations, isn't it, isn't it possible that, that God, as he equips the mind of, of his saints, those who are wise, that they can easily scale those? Those arguments are nothing compared to the wisdom of God. Those defenses that they have are nothing compared to God's wisdom. This is also the case as well. Those who are submissive to God's law, those who are submissive to God's wisdom, that is better than physical defenses. That is better than anything else we can do to defend ourselves, right? This is superior. This is victory. This is what victory looks like. Solomon talks about this, by the way, numerous times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Just quickly turn with me to Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 19. 719. Notice what, what Solomon says. He says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. I don't think this is exact. I don't think this is always the, the case. I think in Ecclesiastes he's given a principle, but the principle is it's better to be a, a, a wise person and have wisdom, and you're like worth ten rulers. Right? Then jump to chapter 9. Notice in chapter 9, verse 13. Notice this, this uh, account that Solomon has. Uh, in verse 13, he says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. Every time that Solomon says that phrase, under the sun, he's talking universally. Right? This is something that's happened in, in the world of men. Right? So this is a universal thing. So he says, in the history of the world, I, I've seen this. 
And he says, and it seems great to me. It's profound. This is a profound thought. Solomon has this profound thought as he sees this and he observes this. He says, there was a little city with few men in it. (coughs) And a great king came against it and besieged it and built great siege works against it. By the way, just the drama already of this verse is interesting. It's a little city with few men against a great king with a great army with great siege works, right? So you get the smallness of the defender and the bigness of the attacker, right? It seems like all hope is lost. Little city, guess what? You're conquered, right? And then notice what he says in verse 15, or verse 15, excuse me. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. So you get the point. Wisdom is is better than than these weapons, right? Better than the king, better than the great army, and that that it's better to have God's wisdom than, than these other things, right? Verse 16, but I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shoutings of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Notice this next one. But one sinner destroys much good, right? So one is better than the other. And I think Solomon here is pointing that out in Proverbs 22, or 21, excuse me, verse 22. He's pointing out this, this reality that wisdom is better. God's wisdom is better. God's wisdom is better than, than military might. I don't think that Solomon, by the way, is saying that you can't have weapons. And I don't think he's saying that there's no reason to ever have an army. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think if you read the Bible clearly and you, you, you put the pieces together and you put things in its proper place, you understand There is a place and a time for those things, right? God has given us responsibility as humans, and we have the right as humans to defend ourselves reasonably. I don't think this passage goes against that. The problem is when you begin to trust in those things to protect you, you have faith in those things, you work hard at those things, and either lessen your time with the Lord or that you don't, there's no trust in the Lord. I'm going to trust my military might. So I come from Wyoming. In Wyoming, this is probably a bigger problem than other places in the world. Everybody packs. In fact, it's a fashion accessory, and if you don't have a six-shooter tied to your hip that everybody can see, you're the one that everybody's like, what's wrong with that guy? Why is he hiding his gun? A lot of guys can tell you exactly how they reload, they can tell you the caliber, they can tell you grain of bullet, they can tell you what kind of powder they're using, they can tell you everything about their calendar, caliber, how their gun shoots, muzzle velocity as the bullet's leaving the bullet. They can tell you what the, muzzle, what the velocity of that bullet is, 20 feet, 30 feet, 50 feet, 100 yards, 200 yards, right? They have extra magazines, they have all that stuff. Sometimes when you talk to those brothers and you say, well, what have you, have you spent time in God's word this week? in the midst of all of your reloading, in the midst of all of your research on bullet velocity and muzzle velocity and all of the different types of tactical tips you can put on the end of your bullet, what have you been spending in God's word? I haven't. I've been too busy. Then you failed. You failed. 
God's word is far more important. God's wisdom is far more important. Not saying that those other things are not important. Not saying that they're not fun. Not saying that there's not a time and place for that. What I'm saying is that we have to put things in its proper perspective. That's what Solomon's calling us back to. That one thing is far more superior than the other. God's wisdom is far more superior. Putting our trust in God and what he says is far better. That's what I think this passage is calling us to, is to think about God's wisdom as, I need to trust God. That, that needs to be number one. And, and I need to learn from God. That needs to be number one. There's some of these other secondary ideas that I can get and I can learn and I can glean, but number one is my relationship with the Lord and submission to his word. That's it. That's number one. That's what a wise person does. Now, notice the next part in verse 22, right, of of chapter 21 of Proverbs. So the man goes up the city walls, right, and then notice what happens, the second part, and brings down the strongholds in which they trust, So he goes up the walls and he brings down the house, right? He defeats. He's the victor. Not not the strong wall, not the military, but but, but he is. But notice notice that last little tag, by the way. It's kind of of militaristic, right? Here's this James Bond type of figure who's able to scale the wall, go and bring the whole thing down through through his, his wisdom. But notice that last part, because this is really important. This is what it hinges on. It says, and he brings down the stronghold in which they trust. They're trusting in that stronghold. Now, this may be an actual wall. But most likely, this is referring to something a little bit more serious. This may be talking about some of the walls that people build, some of the ramparts that people build, some of the defenses that they build, to protect their foolishness, right? I mean, that happens all the time. We see that all the time. We see these entire strategies that people have, arguments that they have, book after book after book on all of these strategies of how to talk to somebody who's who's going to come up to you and talk about God's word. And they have all these strategies. This is how you're supposed to think. And here's, here's all these arguments. God's wisdom when coming up to some of those arguments, are nothing. They're nothing. All of them are nothing. In fact, that's how this chapter is going to end. Uh, we're going to jump ahead in this chapter, but, but I want to show you. Just go down to verse 30. Because this, this is where Solomon's aiming, right? This is where it's going to land. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. So clearly in Solomon's mind, yes, he's talking, he's using this image of a wall, but he's also thinking of when somebody rebels against God's word, there are really smart people who have really smart reasons in their mind of why they're doing it. And sometimes you and I can talk to those people and they can outsmart us and they can give really good arguments that you and I can't fight against because they're smarter. They've thought about it longer. I can't argue that. You bring up some really good points. But the point that Solomon is saying, let's say, let's say that that happens. Ultimately, when it comes up against the wisdom of God, those things don't stand. 
right? So given time when I hear some of those arguments and you hear those conclusions and you say, that conclusion's wrong, I, I disagree with how you get there, I-, I don't necessarily know how to argue with you, I just know you're wrong because I know the conclusion's wrong. I can't necessarily argue you out of that, but guess what? It can't match God. And eventually God's wisdom and God's way is going to rule the day, whether on this earth or on the one that come. And, and then notice the next verse, verse 31. And the horse is made ready for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So the ultimate issue here is trusting in the Lord. So a wise person trusts in God. He trusts in his wisdom. And in trusting in God and trusting in his wisdom, that destroys. That, that destroys the arguments of the foolish. They have no argument against it. They might try to have arguments against it, but they don't. And there are things that they may come up with and things that they may say and things that may be head scratchers for us for a moment. moment. But guess what? God's word will knock down those on biblical and on godly thoughts. That is the conclusion. He wins. At the end of the book, he wins. And so Solomon's advice here, I think, is... A wise person already knows that. He already knows this is the advantage. This is the winning side. This is the winning truth. Stick with this. This is the security. Don't don't leave this wisdom. Don't leave God's law. Don't leave his principles. Don't leave his word. (coughs) So there's security there. There's not only security there, but then notice the next verse. Uh, just because I sin uh, a lot and, and this verse speaks against my sin, we're only going to make like two comments and move on uh, because I only like when you're convicted and I'm not. So, amen? Can I get an amen? No one says amen. Oh, no. Notice the next verse. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Yup. Right? Notice the wisdom of God. If you are able to be wise, submit yourself to the word, submit yourself to the spirit, have self-control, and able to control the things you say, guess what? You're not going to get into a lot of trouble. Right? That's true. This is the brilliance of God's wisdom. Nine times out of ten when I'm in trouble, it's because I said something. Right? It's not because I necessarily did something, but because I said something. And nine times out of ten, I say something because I think it's funny. Wrong time, right? Or, or I speak out of foolishness, right? I, I, I think I have the right to say something that, that might be harsh and cutting because I, I feel like I'm in a position where I can say that. And, and I say it and it comes off too harsh because my heart was harsh, Right? I'm not thinking of the other person. I'm not, I'm not speaking from a position of humility and wisdom and discernment, of saying the right thing at the right time with the right attitude for the right reasons. I mean, there's a lot that we could talk about this, right? The New Testament has a lot to say about this, this idea of the tongue and, and what we say. But, but here's a portrait of a wise person. A wise person has that ability to, to guard his tongue. And notice the security of that. Notice the security of a wise person who has discernment and self-control. He's not putting himself in trouble. There's security there, right? 
Watch what you say. Say things that are in accordance to God's wisdom. Say things that will build up and not tear down. James has a lot to say about the tongue. Uh, And I want to show you some of it. Let's go to James 1. It's interesting to me, James 1. There's a lot of problems that James is dealing with in in, in James. Uh, I believe that the book of James was written around the time of the first great persecution under Saul. As the believers are leaving Jerusalem, James is writing to these believers. And there are believers from all around that... That, that are scattered around, and some of them have money, and some of these, these, these believers that have been displaced from Jerusalem are coming to, this, coming to these cities where there's already established believers who have money and jobs, and there's this, there's this incredible exploitation of some brothers towards other brothers. In fact, we find out in the, in the last part of the book of James that there are some who hire people and then say, I, I'm not going to pay you today. I'm not going to pay you today. I'm not going to pay you today. It doesn't pay. It doesn't pay. But they're getting all this free labor, this exploitation. Really serious issues, right? And and you would assume that if that's really going on, that's a really big issue. That's really bad. That should never be named amongst any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that we're stingy and we don't pay and we're not responsible. You would think that would be the major issue of the day. James talks more about how they talk to one another. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes we have, uh, in, our, in our own thinking, as we interact with each other, there are sins that we go, they're bad, but they're not that bad. There's other sins that are very bad. And we might call some of those sins that we go, they're bad, but they're not that bad. We may call them respectable sins, right? Sins that are okay to, to do in front of mom, right? And, and one of those very well may be those sins that deal with the tongue and the things that we say and the things that we say about each other, right? A lot of times, that's, that's where those, those sins land. But let's go to verse 26 of chapter 1 of James. As James is encouraging and exhorting these believers, just notice this, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious, now, now this is different than how we would use the word religious. This is if anyone thinks of themselves as being godly, someone being righteous, someone who, who really takes the word of God serious, right? views themselves as attempting to live out God's word, right? That, that's the idea here of the word religious. So if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, you see that? It's possible to think of ourselves as being one thing, but actually just lying to ourselves and deceiving ourselves. Then notice what he says next. This person's religion is worthless. So if you can't bridle your tongue... Your godliness is worthless. Go with me to chapter 3. Notice what he says here in chapter 3. Let's just start in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know 
that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The question is why? Well, he's about ready to tell you. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. If we put bits into the, hor- into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. Look at the ships. Though they are large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Think about it. What does your mouth really do for you? What does it do? It doesn't do a lot, right? I mean, there's some things it does. But even the mouth boasts about all of the exploits of the other parts of the body, right? Your mouth doesn't walk a mile, but what does it say? I walked a mile today. Your mouth didn't do that. other part did it. So think of that, right? Here's this small thing that boasts, right? Then notice what he says next. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue sets among the members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. You see? You see? The same time, we can sing praises to God. We can sing these songs, all be in agreement. And then we can then turn and then say something that's not the most edifying about someone else like that. So when we get back to Proverbs 2, you understand the wisdom of, of 21. We can understand how being submissive to God's will, being submissive to God's wisdom and the principles that are found in God's wisdom, that, that's a protection. There's an advantage. There's a security there. And that's an advantage. The problem is, is that we're tempted to leave this advantage and go into another position that is not so is not for us, right? That that, that can hurt us and get us into trouble. That, that that can hurt our brothers and our sisters and and our friends and our neighborhoods, right? We we can do that. We're in a position of wisdom, and we need to stay in wisdom, submitting to God's word, not the other. Now, notice the next thing that said. It's a little difficult, but uh, at, le- at least the wording is a little difficult in the Hebrew, and so I imagine if you have multiple uh, translations at your fingertips, you can see some of the variants of, of how difficult it is to translate this next part, but, but we'll, we'll try to muddle through this. Verse 24, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man. I, I think that's a pretty good translation of what's going on, even though it's kind of reversed. They do that to help with, the, with us with the English but we're moving from this place of, of an advantage, right, of a security advantage. And here's this great disadvantage, right, of folly. And, and it starts off with this guy, the, the infamous man of the book of Proverbs, the, the great 
the great uh, villain of the book of Proverbs, the scoffer, right? This man, the scoffer, the mocker, the guy that goes, huh, that guy, that, that guy who's completely, totally rebellious. This man, scoffer, notice, notice how it describes him. And, and notice, notice how it, the question is, how can a scoffer be so belligerent and so boisterous? And how can he be so rebellious? How can he be so hurtful? How is that possible for this man to do this? Solomon explains, scoffer is the name of, notice this, the arrogant and haughty man. The man who thinks too much of himself, puts too much on himself, narcissistic and thinks he's the best. He walks into the building and says, I'm it. You need nothing else. It is me. I am awesome. He is the type of man that wants you to kiss his shadow because he's too good for you to touch him himself. That's this man. The scoffer is so rebellious towards the things of God because he loves himself so much. But he loves himself in a very sinful way to say, I am it. I need no one else's help. I don't need God's help. I don't need the church's help. I don't need anyone. I am a self-made guy, right? I am self-reliant. My mind is strong enough. My will is strong enough. My strength is strong enough, right? He's arrogant and he's haughty. And then then notice, notice this next phrase in verse 24, who acts with arrogant pride. Now, i got to be honest, you could have just said, who acts in arrogance, and that makes sense, or acts with pride, that makes sense. But to intensify it, he's already called him arrogant and haughty, and then, the, then to say, this guy acts, he's arrogant and he's haughty, and by the way, he also acts with arrogant pride, just intensifies the arrogance and narcissism of this man. Right? I mean, it's intensified. We've already spoken at great lengths of the, the, pro, the, the problem of pride and how devastating that is for our own souls, how devastating that is for others. So th- th- this, is, this is bad. So the question is, how does one leave that position of trusting in God's word? How does one leave that position of relying upon the things that the Lord has given us to help us become more like Christ? Why, what would motivate us to leave that position? You ready? Pride. Because you think you're strong enough. You think you are enough. You don't, you, you don't need anyone else. My mind is strong enough to think. My will is strong enough to act. I, I have enough muscles in my legs to run. I don't need him and I don't need anyone. And it's, and it's that type of self-deception that leads you away from God's wisdom. That's why we so easily throw away all of our armor. That's why we, why, why we so willfully leave the position of this great advantage that we have given to us by Jesus. We think to ourselves in moments of insanity, I don't need him. I'm good enough by myself. Or I'm good enough with the things that I've created. Now there's another issue. Notice this next issue in verse 25. 
Solomon kind of compounds these issues of this self-love, this narcissism, this selfishness. And notice as he's talking about rebellion, that by the way, this is the ultimate rebellion against God, is to assume that I am and everything I have is because of my decisions, my will, my ability. That is ultimate rebellion, right? That's what it looks like. And a society that is incredibly arrogant and incredibly boastful is a society that is moving away from God. That's what it looks like. We might think it looks like something else. It's not. It's one that's full of itself. This, this, type, of, this type of idea, notice how it bleeds over into the next one, verse 25. The desire of the sluggard will kill him. His lusts will kill him. Why? Because all he cares about is his lusts. You've got to remember, a sluggard in the book of Proverbs is not necessarily someone who refuses to work. It's the one who refuses to do what he's supposed to be doing and doing something else, right? That's the idea. It's one who's investing in themselves and doing things. I want to do this. I want to do this. It doesn't mean that they don't work hard. It doesn't mean that they don't exert energy. It means that they don't exert energy for the things that they're supposed to be doing. So here, here's a sluggard and his desire just wanting stuff will kill him. Why? Because he desires, to get, he desires to consume, he desires to have, he desires to fulfill his own fleshly desires, and he refuses to labor. He refuses to do the things that God has asked him to do. And he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get it another way, and I want to keep on. I, I, I want that. I want that. I want that. The very thing that he desires is the very thing that's going to kill him. Right? And then notice how it describes it, verse 26. All day long he craves and craves. That's all he does. I want, I want, I want, I lust, I lust, I lust, I desire, I desire, I desire. That's all that's going through his mind. So think of the, think of the, the, the scoffer. Think of the sluggard. There's this constant flow of this is what I want. This is how great I am. It's an it's a attitude of narcissism, self-centeredness. That is the furthest thing from a Christ-like attitude. This past week I was reading in Philippians 2. Let's go there quickly. Just notice verse 1, Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Philippians 2.2, complete my joy by being made of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not, not only to your own interests, but to also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, he's God, and he did not think of himself as robbing God by being considered equal with him, but he, was being, but he emptied himself, being made in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, 
being found in the humanist, uh, human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The very gospel message itself is anti-selfishness, anti-arrogance. Jesus was not arrogant. He was not selfish. He was humble. When he came and died on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose again on the third day, his cry wasn't, how dare you do this to me? Do you know who I am? What was he looking for? What was he looking to? He was looking to do God's will. What was he looking to? The joy that he set before himself. Us, the salvation, glorifying God. The, the, our lives that would come out of this. All of this is in his mind. That, that is the opposite of selfishness and narcissism. The very gospel itself teaches us that we shouldn't be selfish and narcissistic and proud and arrogant and lazy and self-centered. It teaches us that we should, I need to look out for the needs of others, right? That's what Jesus did. That's what the gospel teaches me, to do that, to love one another. By the way, that's why we should constantly be thinking about the gospel. I can't think of a greater teaching tool that the Lord's given us than the gospel itself. That all of us are sinners, separated from God, incapable of coming, uh, having a right relationship with him. But God in his great love did what we could not do. Sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and die on the cross for our sins. Was buried and rose again on the third day. And anyone who places their faith on the person and work of Jesus Christ alone shall be saved. That simple message teaches us constantly. Right? Now, let's finish this last verse in, in Proverbs quickly. Because there's something that is really interesting about the wise that we're going to see in 21, in the last part of verse 26. So we've already seen the, 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 the security, the, the security advantage of the wise. We've seen the, the, the serious disadvantage uh, of, the, of the fool. Now we're going to see what, what we could call the social advantage. A wise person, as, as he's contemplating God, and he's contemplating God's goodness and his ways and his word, God is changing us from the inside outward, right? That's what he's doing. And if, and if the epitome of foolishness is selfishness and arrogance, then the epitome of righteousness would then be this next thing. But the righteous give and do not hold back. You have the scoffer who's arrogant, only thinks of himself. You have the, the lazy fool who only thinks of himself, and all he does is crave, 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 give, 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 feed, feed, feed. And what is the righteous person who's considering God's will, considering God's ways, who, who's discerning and thinking and, and, and has the Holy Spirit and is living by the power of the Holy Spirit and, and thinking about the gospel and thinking about the implications of the gospel? What, what does that lead that person to do? It leads that person to say, you know what? God has put me here to love my brothers and sisters. And if I have something that will help you, I'll give it. I'll gladly give up all my guitars for you. Right? That, that should be the sense of every believer. That they will gladly give up their guitars to Pastor Caleb. No, I'm joking. Um, that... that we would gladly give up the things we love the most for our brothers and sisters, right? I'm not looking out for my own needs. I'm looking out for you. I want to help you. I want to encourage you. I'm here to encourage you and edify you and, and point you towards Jesus and give and give and give. 
Tonight, we're going to be studying the book of Acts. Uh, going to do an overview of the book of Acts. The first half of the book of Acts is overwhelming at how much the church gave to each other. It's overwhelming. It's absolutely overwhelming. It says numerous times they had all things in common. All things in common. You had people selling houses and land and just giving that money to the church saying, somebody needs help. Do it. Here it is. Help. They were feeding people in the community, right? There was this giving and giving and there wasn't this holding back. It's really interesting. Peter and John actually go and they heal a guy. And remember when, when, when uh, Peter and John said, silver and gold, we have none, but this we say in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Right? There was this sense of giving and the sense of love and brotherly love. That's what wisdom does. That's, what it, that, that, that's, the, that's the product of all of this. Right? That, 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 it's not self-centered. It's wanting to seek to honor and glorify God and love others. That's an advantage. We shouldn't leave that advantage for something else. Right? What, what, would be, what would be the opposite of giving but holding? Right? And why would we ever do that? Because we're influenced by the scoffer and by the, by the sluggard to think only of ourselves, to consider ourselves as being more important than anyone else. That is not how a church should function. By God's grace, hopefully each day, our neighbors, the people we come in contact with, our coworkers are saying, Wow, that guy is becoming more and more gracious, more and more giving, more and more humble, right? So my challenge is that you realize this is what a wise person looks like, and my challenge is that you realize what a foolish person looks like, and by God's grace, and by his constant watch care over our soul, and by our brothers and sisters encouraging us edifying us to live for the Lord, that we will become more and more humble, more and more like Jesus, more and more giving. Not saying that we don't give. We just read a note this morning of one saint who has thanked you for giving. And as a pastor, that is incredible. It warms my heart to know that I'm amongst believers who give. And they give without asking, what am I going to get back in return? That's incredible. That's incredible. But guess what? Each day, the Lord is asking us to do that more and more. And as we're becoming more and more like him, may we become more gracious, more giving, more humble. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Dear Father, we are so very thankful once again for your love, for your mercy, and for your grace. We are so very thankful that you have loved us with an everlasting love, and that you have known us from before the foundation of the world. We're so very thankful that you are changing us from the inside, and that by your spirit and by your word, it's chipping off all of these these bad behaviors and attitudes and sinful, evil thoughts and selfishness and arrogance And we realize that the only way that we can ever be wise or act in a way that's wise is because of your work and your love that you have towards us. We're so very thankful. We ask, Father, that as we leave this place, 
that you will help us remember these things and that we would uh, offer up a life that is um, honoring and glorifying to you. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. As the musicians